This is a Fubar Radio podcast. For more information, go to foobarradio.com. Politics matters with Eleanor Penny. General election coverage on Fubar Radio. I do think that Brexit is the biggest foreign policy blunder over the post-war period. period. Well, you said can, I, can, I, can, I, can you allow me to finish? Uh, well, do you mind? I asked you a question and you're no. ignoring it. No, I'm not ignoring the question. If you'd give me a minute, I'll answer it. come under a lot of pressure then to support Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister because he will be promising a so-called people's Let me be incredibly clear about this. Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson, I do not believe are fit to be Prime Minister. Prime Minister. Body language throughout this evening has been so contemptuous of this house sit, and of the people. Up. And sit for the benefit up. of Hansard, the up. leader of the sit house up. has been spread across around three seats, lying out. If you ask me why am I relatable, I don't, you know, how, how am I relatable? I've not the faintest I've idea. I've not the faintest idea. It seems to me the te- uh, most difficult psychological question that anybody's ever well, asked I'm- me. Good afternoon and welcome to the penultimate episode of Politics Matters on FUBAR Radio's election coverage. This is your one-stop shop for election schlock where we sort through the fact and the fake news where we pinch our noses and dive off the deep end into the treacherous waters of general election 2019 which is just a couple of days away now. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny, and uh, here we practice pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will, in the words of Italian Marxist Antonio Gramsci. Look him up if you don't know him. So you can tweet along and uh, send us your thoughts um, on at Eleanor K. Penny on Twitter, that's me, or at Fubar Radio on all good social media platforms. And you can also email us your thoughts on politicsmatters at fubarradio.com. Um, joining me hopefully soon to rifle through the headlines is the writer Tristan Cross, aka Stan the Golden Boy on Twitter. He is late, but hopefully he will make it. Uh, and then we will uh, definitely be chatting to uh, two doctors, one academic and uh, one medical, Ashok Kumar and Sonia. Adesara. Uh, then we'll be talking to Alex Hearn, UK technology editor at The Guardian, and Nova Flip from Rise Up to talk social media, digital strategy, and the fake news that is you know, flooding our timelines. And last up, uh, we will be chatting to Shadow Foreign Secretary, none other than Emily Thornbury. So the polls have squeezed. Dominic Raab's head vein is bulging ever more prominently as the Tories' um, so-called guaranteed majority has dwindled and dwindled in uh, likelihood. Remember this time uh, last year, uh, not last year, in 2017, papers were declaring a conservative landslide and famously Theresa May lost her majority. And... The Labour Party is doing a lot better than even then. So it's not surprising that The Sun and uh, papers owned by billionaires, the Murdoch press, who have been happily rolling over for the Boris Johnson administration, are absolutely losing their damn minds at the moment. On Sunday, The Sun actually published this completely bananas, gnashing conspiracy map about the so-called like leftist cabal behind Jeremy Corbyn, on which I was very flattered to get a mention, uh, supposedly brokering this idea of Jeremy Corbyn as a threat to national security, as though not being willing to press the press the nuclear button and you know just liking kids to maybe be able to feed themselves without scrimmaging through literal bins and having rickets is some kind of overwhelming challenge to um, the established authorities in this country. And sadly, they may, may well be right. But they were forced to take that map down because it turns out it's from a website run by literal neo-Nazis. I need to remind you that these are the kinds of newspapers that have recently been appointing themselves the final word on what counts as good anti-racist practice in this UK 2019. I am really losing my grip on reality, so please, if you want to save me, you can, you know, sponsor me for £2 a month, of course, or the simpler option is to go out and vote Labour on the 12th of December uh, and tell your friends 
friends and your mum and your aunties and your mates to do the same. So, diving into the headlines... It's not been actually a particularly good week for um, the Conservatives because whilst there's been a lot of fluff and a lot of bluster in the headlines about um, supposedly uh, Corbyn's uh, discovery that the NHS will actually be on the table in um, any US-UK trade deal um, within his Brexit negotiations being the indicative of some kind of Russian leak... That has given way to actually finally talking about the bread and butter issues of how the NHS gets funded, how it gets structured. And as we've seen over the past few weeks, when we get down to talking about policies, about things that will actually materially make people's lives better, the Tories haven't got that much of a clue. And this is what happened when Boris Johnson was challenged to confront the reality of what it means to experience an NHS crippled and crumbling from 10 years of underfunding and even longer of successive privatisations, which, of course, started under Thatcher and then Blair. Um, He was confronted with an image of um, of a young boy who was lying on a pile of coats with a a suspected pneumonia because he couldn't get a hospital bed and he couldn't get seen by a doctor. This is not a unique story. Uh, This is very routine now. We've just shot past all targets on NHS waiting times. You would think that showing empathy to sick child would be a pretty easy gig for any uh, any politician. It's it's up there with kissing babies and standing around in hard hats and high-vis looking extremely out of place. But no... He did an extremely bad job. Have you seen the photo, Prime Minister? Have you seen the photo? I've been told about it by the BBC. We need to be making investments. This is the photo. This is the photo. We need to be making investments now, and that's why we're putting thirty-four billion pounds. This this is a four-year-old boy, Prime Minister, suspected of pneumonia, forced to lie on 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 the floor on a pile of coats. I understand, And, and obviously we have every possible sympathy for everybody who has a bad experience in the NHS. And that's why we're putting the record investment into the NHS now. But we cannot get on and make those investments. We cannot get on and turn this country around, put in 20,000 more police, upgrading 20 hospitals, 40 new hospitals. I'm talking about this boy, Prime Minister. How do you feel looking at that photo? Of course. And let me let me tell you, let me tell you that I, I haven't had a chance to look at that. Why don't look at it now, Prime Minister? Look at it now. This is Jack Willamette. Um, if, if you don't mind, I'll, 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 give, you an, I'll give you an interview uh, now. What we, are, what we are doing is we are taking this country forward uh, and we are investing in the NHS. And uh, what we're... So whilst uh, that was going on, uh, just below the camera, I do encourage you to look up the clip online because the visuals are kind of extraordinary. Boris takes the phone from the journalist who is showing him the picture of the sick kid and then pivots to talk about Brexit, which, as we're well aware by this stage, is the only thing he's really comfortable talking about. That's his home turf. And only is forced to actually respond to the photo when... when the journalist points out on air that, hang on a second, mate, you've just stolen my phone. This is not politics as normal. It's certainly not um, a a usual interview for Boris Johnson, who is used to getting a very soft touch in a lot of his interviews. Quickly after this, um, the Tory press leads tried to spin a story to distract from it that Matt Hancock was um, assaulted, or sorry, Matt Hancock's aide was assaulted by a Labour protester outside of a hospital. It turned out very quickly to be a complete lie. And there is a, there is video evidence to show it. But that didn't stop senior members of the BBC press team just tweeting out that complete lie with no attempt at verification of it. And that is the fake news that has stuck on algorithms, um, in Google... Um, uh, when you actually look up Matt Hancock aid or Matt Hancock hospital aid, the truth about the situation that like an aid walked into the slightly outstretched hand of someone who was desperately begging um, and like haranguing Matt Hancock rightly that, you know, kids are dying, that our NHS is wildly underfunded, you need to do something about it. How dare you come here for a press shoot without doing something about it? They don't talk about that. They just talk about... 
the fact that the, the idea that an aide was assaulted. It's completely, completely maddening and completely irresponsible. And with, and that's this is exactly why it's important not to get caught up in the sort of quick cycle online dramas, which can so easily be diverted into not just fake news, but just stuff which is irrelevant and just only ends up alienating people further from the political process. I do encourage you to go out canvassing if you haven't, hadn't already. Um, and... I love talking to people. I love talking to strangers. I love uh, just hearing about their views. And even if you're kind of indifferent to that, even if you're a bit shy, you do pick up some like great anecdotes along the way. Uh, the other day I was canvassing in a very rainy Birmingham Northfield and I met a very nice man, um, delightful older gentleman, opened his door to me. And uh, he said, yes, you know, child poverty is terrible. And he agreed that the NHS is in crisis and... Climate change really needs to be sorted out, but um, he wouldn't be voting because this, of course, is the end of days. Uh, the rapture is coming and I don't need to worry because uh, soon God will come and build his kingdom on earth and everything will be better. So he wouldn't be voting because he doesn't want to avert the apocalypse. Now, being a good canvasser that I am, I did try. I briefly got into the weeds of like a philosophical discussion about like, mm, how can you know the will of God and whether the rapture is coming and like the necessity of doing good works, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but ultimately, what this means is that the only reason he's not voting and voting to kick the Tories out is that he doesn't want to avoid the literal apocalypse. So if you are interested in the continuation of life on Earth, that does kind of imply that you should, you know, get out and vote. Meanwhile, the, now they've got a bit of um, breathing room and uh, the Labour Party's kind of very much back on home territory with the conversation being around the NHS, they're less on the defensive and they can put out um, cute videos with uh, Jeremy leaning into his like magic grandpa persona. I'll bet Jeremy Corbyn will be glad when this election is over so he can go back to wearing his commie hat. What is a commie hat? I wear a cap. It's a bit like when I was told I was riding a Maoist bicycle. It's a bicycle! Every household doesn't need the fastest broadband. You absolute Moby. What's a Oh God, this is bad. Anyone else starting to find Jeremy Corbyn really sexy? <laughs> University education free to anyone. I'm almost tempted. Gone reflection, who will play for this? Jeremy Corbyn still thinks there's a magic money tree. Yeah, there is. In the Cayman Islands. Come on, Jess. Jeremy Corbyn Get isn't him. some kind of kindly magic grandpa. Quite the opposite, in fact. Wow. Can someone tell me who Jeremy Corbyn is? The next Prime Minister. It doesn't really work without the visuals, but at the end, he high-fives an aide off camera, and that's the moment where I just kind of well up, right? Because, listen, I wake up every day because, and worry about climate change. And so in the past six weeks, I've had to wake up every day and be like, we're going to win. Yeah, hell yeah, we're going to win. And that is the kind of optimism of the will that, that allows me to push through the terrifying analyses that break down uh, the voting figures that give me absolute heart palpitations, showing that the um, Conservatives' last election were only, under some calculations, a possible 75 votes away from a working majority when you factor out things like uh, the fact that Sinn Féin, the Irish party, don't take their seats and the fact that the Speaker of the House doesn't take his seat either. Um, so, these kinds of videos allow me to sleep at night because that is my grandpa doing a good job and that's at the end of the day all I, I really care about. Um, and that's, what, that's why Barry Gardner has been such a tonic these days because Jez, for like all that I do love him, 
is just kind of criminally polite. Like he criminally is unable sometimes to land an actual vicious punch in the way that some people want him to. Like in the first debates, he was up there being asked a question, standing alongside Boris Johnson, um, being asked, do you think truth is important in politics? And he didn't say, listen, we've got a person who was fired twice for lying right beside, beside us. He just, you know, talked generally and was like a very sort of nice and personable person. Barry Gardner, however, does not pull his punches. To you both, uh, I should get your reaction first to what you saw. Well, there was only one Prime Minister on stage, and that was Boris Johnson. And the choice is becoming very clear for the electorate. You can have another hung parliament, all the dither and delay. Jeremy Corbyn again can't answer the basic questions on Brexit. Or you had in Boris Johnson, a Prime Minister with a passion and the plan to get Brexit done. But also the detailed explanation of how he would unleash this country's potential on the NHS, on policing and on the economy. Barry Gardner. Dominic, why are you sweating then and why am I not? Look, it was... Because you're, you're staring reality you're, you're and, not, and not answering the basic questions. Supposed Prime Minister had no grasp of numbers tonight, whether it was the 40 new hospitals, whether it was the 50,000 nurses that didn't exist, or whether it was the One Nation Conservative. This is not a One Nation Prime Minister. This is a 1% of the nation Prime Minister. Okay. The top 1% of this nation over the past 10 years has seen its income go up by 185%, and at the same time, you've got 4 million children so, in poverty. So let's try How this. do you justify Barry. that? Dominic, how do you justify it? And that was when Dominic's head vein seemed to like grow an independent life and track the falling prospects of the Conservative Party in real time. I'm delighted to be joined in the studio by Tristan Cross, also known as at Stan the Golden Boy okay. on Twitter. Hiya, how are you doing? Hiya. Thanks for having me. <laughs> you are so welcome. Um, so, how are you feeling at the moment? Are you hopeful? Are you despairing? Uh, uh, recklessly optimistic. Recklessly optimistic. Why recklessly? Uh, I've just decided not to entertain the idea of uh, what if it's bad for since the last two years. I think it worked out well last time. Yeah, it worked out because I think, I think that's that's where I am, right? Because the the thought of like the possible ramifications of five more years of Tory rule at any stage in the game is pretty terrifying. But mm -hmm. these next five years are encapsulate. Brexit negotiations and, of course, five vital years in fighting the climate crisis. So this, you know, particularly gives me, um, I, I believe the technical term is the screaming heebie-jeebies. So you're working for momentum, I believe, yeah, at I'm the helping, moment. Yeah, helping them with some wee propaganda. <laughs> How's it been at the coalface? The, the forefront of memes. Uh, it's, it's been good. It's, uh, it's been a lot of... I don't know, I always end up saying the word momentum, describing momentum. It's, it Small feels, M momentum. Yeah, there's, it feels like there's a lot of energy there, even though there's a lot of people basically wired out of their heads, just sort of propping themselves awake with tea after tea. But otherwise, I don't know, it's a quite energising place. Yeah, that bit in um, Tom and Jerry where he props open his eyelids with, um, uh, with cocktail sticks. I love it. Right, yeah. The yeah. first thing I do when Jeremy Corbyn becomes Prime Minister, which he will, Jeremy Corbyn is the next Prime Minister, um, I will just have to clean my room. Like, first I have a little cry of joy, and then I have a sleep, and then I have a dance, and then... Why have you been, why have you been of, putting this off until Jeremy Because, because I, can't, I can't be doing basic things like caring for myself and eating and sleeping Absolutely. when there's right. socialism to be won. It seems frankly irresponsible. You've decided to live in squalor for the cause. Yeah. I respect that. Thank you. I feel like my sacrifice, hopefully, will not have been in vain. Now, what do you think is a thing that like we are not talking about here like what are some issues that you think that need to be put on the agenda in the next few days if Labour are going to push it across the line uh, ooh. what what are the kind of as in what are Labour not hitting or, yeah hmm, I guess the there's the the kind of eternal tightrope that they've had to walk for the last three years which is that huge parts of the country that are their support are both ways divided on their Brexit position and being from, I guess, Wales. Uh, <laughs> I guess Wales. <laughs> I guess Wales. There's, yeah, a lot of people are kind of frustrated at how, I guess, they return Labour MPs repeatedly at the ballot box 
and their life doesn't seem to materially change and I think obviously any movement uh, of the left needs to kind of be talking to people constantly in these kind of things and not not made to feel like they've been siloed uh, whether you can actually do that within two days I don't know <laughs> uh, I believe I think yeah the, the in from other parts of my friendship groups in Wales that are much more Labour it seems like quite a similar thing has happened to two years ago where there's been quite a gradual after all like this weird scare and talk of oh maybe Wales will finally finally <laughs> they've been waiting to go Tory no they won't go Tory because I think people in Wales hate the Tory party like a lot of places in the in, in various parts of the UK but I think the fact that the Brexit party have sort of disbanded is in probably a rare case in Wales alright although there are a few seats where it's kind of testy uh, otherwise what do I think should be on the agenda uh, I don't know having a laugh for Christmas there all these things you know <laughs> there's the void afterwards yeah the void uh, there's a lot of energy that's going to be carried on from this you know there's a lot of people that have put a lot of time into this election and um whether this is actually going to help the election anyway, but it would seem a shame not to harness this beyond. I think whatever is the case after the 12th, or when we wake up on an inconveniently dated Friday the 13th Absolutely. and discover what has happened, there's still going to have been thousands and thousands of people who haven't gotten involved before, haven't gotten stuck in, who are mobilised, empowered, upskilled. And this is something that can't be put back in its box. I think that's probably about all we have time for. Um, <laughs> Thank you so much, Tristan, for coming on, even if briefly it was an absolute pleasure. Um, after the break, we're going to have Ashok Kumar and Sonia Adesara. And briefly, I will leave you with Sonia's words. So I've just finished a night shift in A&E and it was pretty um, awful. We had a um, five to six hour wait to see a doctor. Um, our waiting rooms and the corridor was just completely rammed all night. Um, patients and and their families, their relatives were getting angry with us. They were shouting at staff because they were upset um, and angry, rightly so, that their relatives were being left for hours, not getting treatment. Um, it wasn't safe, it's not sustainable and it's not fair on patients, it's not fair on us NHS staff. Um, and I'm angry because this hasn't just happened. It has been policies and decisions that have led to this to happen. So the decision to close the neighbouring A&E, the decision to cut beds, the decision to cut social care funding, um, the decision to underfund our community care so patients end up in A&E because they can't get a GP appointment. All these things have happened for... Ha the crisis in our A&Es are a result of policies. Okay, and policies that people have decided and those same very people are now pretending as if they had nothing to do with it and that makes me really angry. I would really like our politicians to take some responsibility for the crisis that they have caused in our NHS. That voice sounds awfully familiar. <laughs> Oh, I hate hearing my voice on. <laughs> well, you, that clip has had like 1.4 million views. You're being relentlessly tormented with I your know, own eloquence. It's freaking me out. Um, <laughs> if, that, if that wasn't a clue, that I have Sonia Adesara and Ashok Kumar with me. I have two doctors. I feel the disappointed hands of my ancestors on my shoulders. <laughs> Um, as we speak. Uh, <laughs> all right, I'll take that. Yeah, yeah you fine. take that. It's yeah, a sideways it. compliment. Yeah. So, I'm asking everyone, everyone this today because we are on the cusp of the election. How are you both feeling? Are you feeling optimistic? Are you feeling anxious? What's the What's the story? <clears throat> well, I think that uh, a healthy dose of anxiety <laughs> is a motivator, and then also, I mean, I feel like this is how I am. <clears throat> how everyone I know is feeling is. We're feeling like um, last year gave us, or two years ago, gave us a lot of hope uh, for, and also the last four years, five years. So people are looking at the polls, but they're also like, polls haven't told us really much of anything. So um, I think Except most the good polls, which everyone likes. Ah, yeah, the good polls are great. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think a lot of people, I mean, if you look at the numbers, it's just like thousands of people. Last night in Putney, it was like 800 people. It was just, 
you know, on a weekday that's cold and rainy. So, yeah, I, I feel confident that regardless of what happens, we're having a political sort of fundamental altering of the tectonic plates of politics. So a conservative politician, conservative PR man, might say that, like, listen, this is all very well and good, but ultimately conservatives have managed to make employment uh, the highest it's been uh, in decades. So, like, really, when you look at the actual, you know, working people, they're not doing too badly. So maybe this student support won't translate into votes. Is that what... Uh, to- Sorry, I didn't mean to... Is that what Tories are saying? I, I mean, mean, like, yeah, this I is the point employment to, thing. They, is. They, po- they point to un- low unemployment rates, but what we know about low unemployment rates is that, obviously, I mean, I'm saying what probably a lot of people know is that unemployment is based on how many people have stopped seeking work and also how many people are, um, it doesn't take into account underemployment. So what we have is a hollowing out of the labor market. So people don't have firm, permanent positions there. Uh, uh, sort of in work poverty we've heard about a lot but but also about underemployment you have people juggling multiple jobs so what that does is it undermines the unemployment or the employment figures so it's not really indicating the healthiness of the economy if you look at the economy for example in the last 10 years because of austerity economics what you see is real term wages in 2018 fall by 30% to 2008. So the average family in the country could spend, the value of what they have in their pocket and what they could spend and what they could purchase and what they could own is 30% low, less. That's, it's, that's quite significant. Also, if you look at the Q3, three weeks ago, that's third quarter earnings, what you saw was that um, we were not 0.3% off of an re- official recession, right? That means that basically of the OECD, that's the 35 richest countries in the world, uh, the advanced capitalist world, in we are amongst the poorest performing since 2017, the last election. We're 31 out of 35. I mean, Jeez. this isn't a record to brag about. People have less money. The economy is like Swiss cheese. Basically, the only parts of the economy that have actually improved are construction and service, which are based on speculation. So it's just based on how much the central bank is willing to let people borrow. It's not based on the real economy and manufacturing is falling and the, the pound is falling. And, and over to Sonia, because this cashed out in real terms, we're hearing a lot of stories coming out of the woodwork um, in the last few weeks particularly about the real cost of um, the cuts in terms of the working conditions of people who are picking up the slack, mm. essentially, for um, austerity. Because, yes, the NHS is maybe arguably sort of just about struggling along ditto social care social services all of these frontline uh, all of these frontline jobs but there seems to be like a lot of hidden labor beyond the official hours that you're paid for going into that mm. i think also just to pick up on your previous point i think the toys keep putting out these these lines about you know record unemployment but actually people can see what's around them and i think that like the public are not stupid so I, you know, I, I live with quite a few young people, like people in their late 20s, and just to survive and live in London, they're working crazy hours, they're exhausted, that's why they're getting involved in politics. So I think just, I think people are starting to see through all these like lines and, and numbers and statistics coming out and well, actually, this is not my reality. Um, and then, yeah, with the NHS, I think we, I think due to, to staff shortages, many of us work longer hours um, work over, you know, working extra hours that they're not getting paid for, and you do it because actually you have to. Um, but it's getting worse and worse year on year, and and then people do do get burnout, and you see a lot of doctors and nurses who are leaving the profession, leaving the NHS because they just can't continue. What do you think of the four day week in that context? Because a lot of people are sceptical about how on earth that will be implemented in the public sector, and like, oh, aren't you just going to have? less service and less coverage if doctors are all taking three days off and that kind of thing. Well, as I understand, the four-day week is for the whole economy and we're talking about how we're changing the economy and how it works. Um, I, think it, I, think, I think people are starting to... You know, my mum is someone that would work five, six days a week. She'd leave, leave at seven in the morning, come home at 10pm. And I'm sort of in position like, actually, why, why does she do that? Why, did, why just to sort of survive and have enough money to live comfortably does she have to work these crazy hours, exhaust herself? And actually, I think a lot of people are like, actually, do we need to do things like this one? I think like someone like, you know, Shock and a lot of sort of academics and economists saying, actually, no, we can, we can have a different way how we do the economy, how we work. Um, and I, don't th- I think this whole thing of, oh, 
sort of s- selecting out the NHS as sort of, oh, we, we, this won't work. I'm like, no, actually, this is the, we're talking about how a, ch- a change in the whole economy. Um, and I think it's 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 not something that's going to happen overnight. I think it's something it's a, it's a it's a, a long ten year plan to change the way that economy works. But I think a lot of people are like, yeah, you know, why do we just why are we all exhausted? Why does one in four people have mental health problems? Why is everyone facing burnout and stress and you know sleepless nights? Actually, we should we should be like, what is the what is the phrase like not living living to not working not living to work working to live yeah that just makes sense to me like yeah actually let's 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 enjoy this life that we have why does it have to be so exhausting and so stressful and so hard for so many people because one of the social goods that we have as a society which is in unequally shared out is not just wealth and income and that kind of thing it's also leisure time Mm. right and like that is one of the key indicators of like class like how much time um or how little free time you have in order to just do basic things like keeping a roof over your head mm. and putting food on your kids' yeah. tables if it's you're easy. still allowed to do that. Now, obviously, to tackle the kind of multiple overlapping crises we have, like automation, ageing population, the climate breakdown, we can't just kind of go back to business as usual. Like any work, any plan to reform how we do work can't just be about reopening the mines and like going back to a sort of uh the nine to five that a lot of people venerate in the 1950s like what should what kind of policies should we be looking at uh pushing through a labor government if one gets in well i mean i think that there's some before the 1970s that were fairly i mean the 1970s obviously we know that flexibilization was introduced where people were obviously <coughs> the instability of work is quite important if you're an employer you can if you have someone that you can call upon at any time you only pay for them for that time. It, you're maximizing profits through maximizing the efficiency of that time. And it doesn't matter what that worker thinks or ha- has in, in life. There's no such thing as leisure time because you're always on it, right? Mm. So if you get rid of something like zero-hour contracts, what you do is you, you afford people a little bit of stability, but it's actually a bit more complicated than that because people, a lot of times people actually like the model that we're in right now, like some parts of the model that we're in right now. And there's old sort of an old-school way of thinking of saying, no, it was so great back then. But if you look at, for example, just to use the Labor Manifesto, for example, it's not saying we just go back to that. It's saying... We want the best parts of that and the best parts of this. We want flexibility as well. Flexibility is nice. You know, the ability for me to move from one job to another is actually like, you know, it's not a terrible thing. It's just that it's used actually to put downward pressure on workers. Another thing is that like, you know, one of the proposals that they have, for example, is around um, uh, workers owning a share of the of the company. Now, personally, I don't think that that's that. Per, I mean, there's this person, Andre Gores. Lots of people are familiar with him, but basically, he wrote this book, this pamphlet in 1962 called "Strategy for Labor," in which he divides reformist reforms, which are reforms that reinforce the existing power of capitalists and capitalism, and non-reformist reforms, which are reforms that are trying to pierce the logic of revolution versus reform. Non-reformist reforms, which are reforms that like fundamentally alter the relations of power, right? I think that this doesn't actually do that. If you have a large employer, so let's say, you know, employers with over 200 workers who have to, you know, 10% is owned by workers, that's fine. But what it does, I mean, it's not a bad policy, but the, the problem with a policy like that is it's very, it's un, it, what happens is those little places become what you call like kind of little enclaves of labor aristocracy, where they just care about their own other workers. They don't care about, necessarily care about society as much because they're making the profits off of their company. So what it does is it blends or confuses the distinction between worker and employer. And, it, and, and people don't act as a class. They act as an employee of a specific employer. So I just think, I think some of the policies are really great. Some of the policies could probably, I don't necessarily think, move us in the direction we want to move in, which is fundamentally reconfigure the social and economic relations of society. That no small task there. I mean, what, what you're picking up on, is is partly something that we're seeing through um, the climate movement, which is the fact that so in some kinds of um, like he- heavily uh, unionized industries, which are also happen to be in industries that are fueling climate change, you do get people confronting a conflict between like yes, they care about climate change, but ultimately they feel kind of pinned into a corner because the job that they're doing, that is putting mm. the, a roof over their head, is something that they don't wants to sacrifice so when we're talking about um reforming work we also need to be talking about like how we collectively think about what work is valuable and something that strikes me in the labor manifesto certainly is how uh, care work mm-hmm. is is at the center of it mm-hmm. 
what kind of other sort of works would you like to see, you know, pushed forward into the public eye, like, in the next coming years? I think that, I think care work has been undervalued for a long time, um, possibly because it's, care work is done predominantly by women. Um, but I think also, um, there's a lot of, and I see this a lot in the in where I work, that a lot of a lot of predominantly actually women will do looking after their families, looking after elderly relatives. That's all unpaid often. And if you look at the care allowance that they get, it's nothing for what they do, which is often a 24-hour job. It's a hard job. It can be quite a degrading job. So I think there's certain things that we... And, and I think we take it for granted because actually often people will just, women will just do it without complaining, whereas that needs to be valued more. But also I think there's... You know, I guess it's, it's interesting because I work... So I work in A&E and, um, and actually... When it comes to looking after the patient, there are so many different people that are working to give someone good care. Um, and we always just think, oh, the doctors and nurses, but actually it's the porters, it's the domestic person who comes and cleans up the vomit off the floor, it's the, um, the radiographer. And actually, I think we need to sort of remove this, this hierarchy that you get, of, actually of pay that you get within that workplace. And I think, you know, I think it's really sad we're talking about often our, our domestic staff are on actually... Because often, more, more increasingly, they tend to be outsourced on really bad contracts, get paid actually really, really shit wages for what they're doing. Actually, for the work they're doing, it's hard. It's, it's physically hard. And actually, it's, it's, it's not pleasant work. You know, it's, it's often, you know, you're often cleaning up people's excrements. You're, you know, you're doing... And it's real, real true caring, right? Like, you know, all the, the, the HCAs, people that they wash the patients, take them to the toilet, undress them. You know, it's really sort of... It's, it's physically hard, but actually it takes a lot for someone to do that, and I have so much respect for the people that do that. And they get paid peanuts, like real peanuts, and it's, it's not fair that, that, they, that they do And they do actually, I think, because of how much they care. Oh, yeah, and you get people like uh, Boris Johnson saying, like, these are unskilled workers. It's like, you try and do <sighs> that Would for, he do for that? one day. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I think that skill is obviously, the, the whole idea of skill is completely, like, shaped and circumscribed around, like, how, what we think of people as human, right? Like, if you look at various industries, historically, you look at, like, seamstresses were seen as unskilled, but someone working in an auto factory was seen as skilled. I, I could work in an auto factory because it was, like, regimented and standardized. I couldn't be a seamstress, but it's only because one was done by women <coughs> historically in the present and also one, the other was done by men. But I would say that one of the things I wish I'd... It, it, now that you say this in the Labor Manifesto, and I think it's a really radical program, and, um, and I support, like, almost all of it, but is that I wish that something like what uh, Sonia was saying about, look, so I work in a university, you know, at the upper crest you have, you know, obviously university management, but then we have professors and then we have like cleaners and et cetera. What it would be great is if we changed the trade union law so there weren't craft unions. I don't have a union that's fighting over the crumbs with the cleaners and they're fighting over the crumbs. I mean, we're all in this together. We should have wall-to-wall industrial-style unions where we're actually making demands together as workers. And yes, maybe a doctor might get paid nominally more than a cleaner. But at the end of the day, we're in the struggle together. And what craft unionism does, which I think some of the manifesto maybe reinforces, not in a bad way, but in a, in just hmm. um, could have been more moving in the direction of industrial unionism in terms of the law. Thank you so much to both of you. I could talk about this to both of you for hours, but sadly we don't have hours. Um, I am just about to be joined by Nova Flip and Alex Hearn. Thank you so much, Sonia and us. Ashok. And uh, join us again soon, just after this clip of um, Sasha Baron Cohen going in on Facebook. Democracy, which depends on so shared truth, is in retreat and yeah. autocracy which depends on shared lies, is on the march. Hate crimes are surging, as are murderous attacks on religious and ethnic minorities. Now, what do all these dangerous trends have in common? I'm just a comedian and an actor. I'm not a scholar. But one thing is pretty clear to me. All this hate and violence is being facilitated by a handful of internet companies that amount to the greatest propaganda machine in history. The algorithms these platforms depend on deliberately amplify the type of content that keeps users engaged, stories that appeal to our baser instincts and that trigger outrage and fear. It's why YouTube recommended videos by the conspiracist Alex Jones billions of times. It's why fake news outperforms real news because studies show that lies spread faster than truth. 
And it's no surprise that the greatest propaganda machine in history has spread the oldest conspiracy theory in history, the lie that Jews are somehow dangerous. As one headline put it, just think what Goebbels could have done with Facebook. Zuckerberg tried to portray this whole issue as choices around free expression. That is ludicrous. This is not about limiting anyone's free speech. This is about giving people, including some of the most reprehensible people on earth, the biggest platform in history to reach a third of the planet. Freedom of speech is not freedom of reach. Sadly, there will always be racists, misogynists, anti-Semites, and child abusers. But I think we can all agree that we should not be giving bigots and pedophiles a free platform to amplify their views and target their victims. Zuckerberg speaks of welcoming a diversity of ideas. And last year, he gave us an example. He said that he found posts denying the Holocaust deeply offensive, but he didn't think Facebook should take them down because I think there are things that different people get wrong. We have, unfortunately, millions of pieces of evidence for the Holocaust. It is an historical fact. And denying it is not some random opinion. Those who deny the Holocaust aim to encourage another one. If you pay them, Facebook will run any political ad you want. That is the slightly unlikely allyship of Sasha Baron Cohen, most known for um, Borat. Now, a voice of understanding and reason. This 2019, I can't keep up. Gosh. Okay, so I am joined by the delightful Alex Hearn, UK technology editor at The Guardian, and Nova Flip from Rise Up UK, uh, which I believe you can find on all good social media platforms. Is that right? That is right, yes. Okay, (laughs) wonderful. It's an absolute pleasure to have you both in here because as you are obviously more than aware... um, We have had a bit of a doozy this election, particularly in terms of a a welter of um, what is now known as fake news, but is in other people's opinions just good old political propaganda. And, of course, the um, battlefront for uh, the votes and hearts and minds of the young largely taking place on places like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, because they're not at home answering the doors to canvases, which is kind of strange. So, and uh, in a little moment, we will be joined by Emily Thornbury. So uh, that's going to be fun. I actually um, uh, met her once in 2017 at a party, dancing to horse meat disco, and let's see if she remembers me. Um, So... We've seen millions splashed on social media advertising and political parties duking it out in the meme war. Alex, what is the difference between how different parties are using social media? I think uh, a, really, a really important key difference is that Labour seem to be very directly focused on, on motivation, on get-out-the-vote efforts, on uh, attracting and motivating their, their core supporters. The Conservatives are taking a... Uh, objectively, a, a more interesting strategy on social media, <laughs> right? Let, put it that way. Uh, a colleague of mine, Jim Watson, calls it the endless screaming strategy, which is just nothing matters other than how loudly and endlessly your own supporters scream. Truth doesn't really matter. Content doesn't really matter. Nuance doesn't really matter. It is about encouraging people to just yell slogans and factoids as frequently and deafeningly as possible. And so you see that with the Conservatives with things like the slogan, Get Brexit Done, which uh, is, is absolutely both their motto for the election, their core policy, perhaps their only policy, and it is a thing that they have uh, been getting people to spread, not only, not only supporters, not only if you tweet attacking the Conservatives will you get endless replies saying I think we should just get Brexit done and that's why I support the Conservatives but even weaponising their own opponents to Mm. spread this message and we saw that way back at the beginning of the election campaign with the now uh, infamous Comic Sans get Brexit done tweet (laughs) which uh, for those of you who aren't endlessly online was a tweet sent out by the Conservative Party that, that came from the main social media account of the party 
and simply read in black text and white background, get Brexit done in the uh, infamous hated Comic Sans typeface. And the point is that that wasn't clever messaging, that wasn't a motivating uh, tweet, that wasn't a wonderfully produced video, that had no celebrity endorsements. But what it did have was suddenly tens of thousands of people quote tweeting it, sharing the message to their own followers. And sure, they were saying, haha, look at this awful design. But that didn't really matter because what they were also doing on like day one of the election campaign was reminding every single person who follows them, many of whom may not share their politics, that the Conservative Party's policy is get Brexit done. And we've seen that approach. (laughs) It used to be like no platform for fascists, and now it's no platform for fascists unless you have a really good joke to quote tweet them with it. It's yeah, it's kind of um, it's kind of maddening to see that strategy working. I can feel that emotional pull on on it myself as an unfortunately extremely online person. But talking about celebrity endorsements. Nova, flip. May I call you Nova? Nova among friends? Oh, I feel very (laughs) privileged. Um, So how are you, like, utilising social media in order to galvanise that infamously, endlessly discussed youth vote that really could swing this election either way? Well, we're definitely doing that through celebrity endorsements, if if we're talking about that. Um, We've had Lady Leisha on board and Maverick Sabre and Professor Green and a number of people who've kind of come on board to support our campaign. Um, what we're trying to do is get them to you know, use their platforms to just reach those young people who don't necessarily feel engaged in the process at all. Um, I would also say that really our campaign is about campaigning on the street. Mm-hmm. Like we are using social media because young people are there and they're, they, they're following these kind of artists and, and you know, we're trying to reach places on social media where they are. But they're also out, outside, we, we've, we've gone to street campaigning to actually go out to estates, go to youth clubs and speak to people directly where, you know, where other people might not actually reach them at all. And there does seem to be this kind of like uh, increasing chasm that polls are unable to predict between the, um, <laughs> between the um, opinions of people who are traditionally excluded from the political process and, of course, young people who are overwhelmingly lean to the left, if not to the far left. Um, how do you, what do you think is going to happen on Friday as someone who's really at the core phase of that? <laughs> I really have no idea. Like, I really can't predict what's going to happen on Friday. Um, uh, I have no idea. As a campaign rise up, I just really hope, you know, we've, we've, we've got a lot of young people who have registered to vote for the first time. And I, I really just hope that they all come out and actually do vote and have a say, whatever that may be. You know? So um, to talk to us more about the prospects for three days time joyful or mournful uh whether it may be is none other than emily thornbury herself hello it's lovely to have you on the show thank you for having me so we've just been talking about the uh uses and abuses of social media and disinformation in uh the 2019 election so people are still predicting a uh, tory landslide others are warning that it's all still to play for now as the question of brexit weighs heavy on uh on the on our timelines and in our broadsheets um how how are labor trying to kind of break through that um that issue which a lot of people feel that the, the labor party are kind of weak on well i think the first thing the first thing we say is that this idea of getting brexit done is just simply a lie and the tories are wrapping themselves up in that lie and hoping that nobody notices anything else <laughs> um but it is a lie you know they're not going to get brexit done at the end of january we have to continue to have a relationship with the rest of europe it's going to take a long time to negotiate it is going to go on for years and so you have to begin with that and then say, OK, so that's a lie. So now we've cut through that. Let's look at this being a general election and holding them to account for everything that they've done to our country in the last nine years. You know, and the political choice that was austerity and what they've done to public services and how the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And then you go on from that. But how, do, how are you going about tackling these sort of misinformation strategies? Because it, it does seem to me that, for instance, when the Conservatives came out with this figure that they just actually just pulled out of their ass, right? This, this £1.2 trillion price tag on a Labour Party manifesto. And we spent our time endlessly debunking uh, the, the actual figure, which means that we weren't necessarily spending as much time as you know I personally would like 
saying that like actually big headline figures aren't necessarily something to be scared of that they are you know a part of a necessary reinvigoration of our economy are you, are you finding that kind of dynamic a problem in your campaigning it is really difficult because as you say if you spend your time saying that's just a lie and you and you promote i mean for example it's just a silly little little thing but you know rosina Alan khan so she's done this love actually video with her standing on a doorstep with cards and saying you know vote vote rosina and all the reasons why and the prime minister's just copied her <laughs> and it's really annoying you know rosina has already put one out and it's just an absolute copy obviously different words on the card um the whole thing is the same. And so the temptation to go out there and say, oi, think of your own ideas, stop copying Rosina, is very high. But if you do, then you just give more attention to the Prime Minister's stupid little bit of, of film, you know, pretending to be the love lawn guy from, uh, from Love Actually. Were you expecting this campaign to be marked by quite as much shamelessness as it has? <laughs> well, I... I think that given the um, the Brexit campaign, yes, I think that uh, we were we were well ready for it. You know, we knew this is what was going to happen, and you know their message discipline is very strong, and it doesn't seem to matter whether it's true or not. And I always say they're like a kind of flock of starlings. You know, they're so disciplined; they all go off in one direction, and then at ten past eleven on a Thursday, they all turn and go off in another direction. And and that's it's it's formidable, but it's. And, and it's and it's manipulative, but it is fundamentally untrue. And the question is, can you, by being truthful and by being earnest and by trying to say that there's another way, can you cut through that? Well, that's what you I was can. going to ask. Did did yeah. you know? Did did you come into this election with a strategy, with a with a way a way to beat Tory lies, or is this something that? I mean, I think even those of us who expected falsehoods in this campaign have been shocked by some of the lengths they've gone to for me a, a big breaking point was the fact check uk farrago when they yeah. live tweeted their own fact checks like how, how can you plan for this I'd, I'd say i think it's very difficult because if you spend any time denying it then you just give extra oxygen to it and then if you ignore it does it allow it to become a truth and all you can do i think is not allow yourself to be pushed off course and say, right, these are the messages that we want to get out. You know, we want to get out that there is another way. It doesn't have to be this way. There's, there's Labour's way. Um, we will invest in our economy. We will make sure that it gets off its knees. We will make sure that we have proper infrastructure and we're going to look after people. And it can be afforded because there are people out there with broad shoulders who frankly have had their taxes cut for quite a long time and large companies. And the company taxation is only going to be like the average of the G7. So it's not, I mean, I always say <laughs> that, uh, although Jeremy wouldn't like me to say it, I actually don't think <laughs> it's that radical. I don't think the manifesto is that radical. I think it's just, <laughs> it's mainstream European social democratic politics, you know? I think something that sort of strikes me as extraordinary and a particularly toxic ramification of Tory messaging strategy is that um, this kind of, suspicioned is not limited to only conservative press releases when we're used to navigating a media in which people will boldly sh like shamelessly lie that has spillover effects where i'm when i'm talking to people on the doorstep yeah. often the problem is not convincing them that as you're saying these are like very sensible uh kind of uh, popular policies that are by European standards absolutely plausible and in fact necessary. Now, that argument is kind of easy to have. The difficult thing is persuading people that it's not total, uh, it's, it's not total hokey coming out of um, politicians' mouths and that we can actually have nice things. And that kind of, it's not even apathy. People are deeply political, but it's, people are also deeply suspicious that the political system is for them. I can definitely agree with that. I mean, campaigning with young people, a, a lot of them, the, the, the kind of people we try to target, um, don't necessarily believe in the political system at all. A lot of youth voting campaigns target students who generally vote anyway. So we're kind of trying to reach people like on the states who might not actually feel like any of these parties engage in them. Um, Emily, how would you how would you feel about um, those young people, and uh, what would you say to them who don't feel that anyone's kind of really speaking to them? I think that's right, and I think you were talking about the conservative strategy earlier, but I think part of the conservative strategy 
is also to suppress the vote. You looked at uh, all the politicians who were putting out messages about the importance of registering to vote, and Boris Johnson didn't put out one. I mean, it's not their strategy. You know, their strategy is to try to suppress the vote, to make people think nothing can be done until we get Brexit done, we will get Brexit done at the end of January, and just bore people into submission, and, but also disenfranchise them, make them think that power is not in their hands. But what I say is the establishment has had to stop. They're holding their breath. They have no idea what the public is going to do. And the power is literally in everyone's hands. And although, you know, you may only have a little bit of power, you are as important as anyone else, and your voice is as important as anyone else. When people say to me they're not going to vote, I go, well, why are you less important than the guy next door? And then, you know, they'll say, oh, I don't read really anything about politics. I say, well, he doesn't know anything about politics either, but he's voting. <laughs> We're all in this here. Well, that's, that's definitely a key thing we've noticed also, and a lot of young people say that they don't feel like they know what's going on. Um, they don't feel like um, they're educated on it at school. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. But well, that's why, that's why our policy is to introduce votes at 16, because it isn't just votes at 16. It's also you'll be at school or you'll be at college when you vote for the first time, and part of the curriculum has to be, right, what are the GLA elections? What are the, what, you know, what power do they have? What can you expect them to do? You know, what does the mayor of London do versus local authorities versus... It's kind of quite complicated, and frankly, not many people really get it. You know, but it will be part of your education to go that. When you're voting, this is what they're responsible for. Hold them to account on this. I tell you what, a lot of conservative politicians, it seems like, could could do with a similar education, despite um, that you know the forty grand price tag on some of their schooling. Um, Alex, are you... yeah, we did some research that followed how individual members of the public actually consume news on smartphones, which we think hasn't been done before. We uh, tracked exactly what they were doing on their screen for three days. And the absolutely terrifying case study was the man who saw four news headlines in that time, clicked on none of them. And the punchline is that he is considered the politically informed member of his friendship group, and they often ask him for advice on how to vote. Oh, that's horrifying. <laughs> um, so this is the thing. You don't need to know much to be better than anyone. Um <laughs> like the negative <laughs> equality but this is the kind of thing of like I, this um uh this writer called jack Schenk who's gone been going around um the country talking about how deeply political um this moment is and i think he's completely right but what those kinds of metrics show is that the way in which we're used to analyzing those kinds of ways of moving through politics and experiencing what it is to be political are um, very much outdated, very much um, uh, not suited to how people are living their lives. And that is something that is only going to be challenged further on Thursday, whatever the result. I think that's probably all we have time for. Thank you so much to my guest, Nova Flip, Alex Hearn, and of course, Emily Thornbury. Pleasure. So if you told me four years ago, I would be spending my time uh, pounding the streets for a major political party um, when I was spending my time at squat parties and on UCU picket lines. Uh, so I would have laughed you out the room. Uh, my first kind of capital P political memory is the Iraq war. And I remember as a young kid really being so clear in my anger that millions of people had stood up against war and Tony Blair had just kind of gone along and, and done some done some nice war crimes anyway. And, uh, and what what everyone said kind of just didn't really matter. And I remember the disappointments of Gordon Brown and how Ed Miliband's platform, you know, even though he was called Red Ed, right, was basically just austerity by another name, but a bit less, and border controls by people who are less cartoonishly evil. Um, and so, yeah, I've always wanted the Tories out. Let's not beat around the bush. But um, I've never really felt inspired or, or hopeful before. And, you know, today, despite everything, I do feel genuinely hopeful because this really is a chance to transform the country, to tackle climate breakdown before it's too late, to lift millions of people out of poverty, to have real robust social services, so much stuff. And I feel hopeful in part because, you know, it is still possible that the Tories lose their majority and because something has been unleashed uh, that will not be put back in its cage, whether that's the terrifyingly emboldened far right uh, all of those thousands of new activists trained up throughout this election period um, and uh, in 
canvassing and phone banking and just talking to their neighbours about what is really going the hell on in this country. So as David Orr puts it, hope is a verb with its shirt sleeved rolled up. It is not just a feeling, it is something that you do. Then the thousands and thousands of activists who have also pounded the streets and knocked on doors have been practising hope. So the planet can't vote. The kids scrimmaging through bins to find a meal, they can't vote. And most homeless people aren't registered to vote. So it's the duty of everyone else, all of us, to kick out the Tories, to practice hope on Thursday. You've been listening to a FUBAR Radio podcast. For more information, go to foobarradio.com.